Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about a different way to live with Alzheimer's. Also, some fresh ideas on an old condition, arthritis, and how self-talk affects us. And is COVID actually over? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Tonight, I wanted to talk to you about a very concerning medical condition that seems to be on the rise and not only impacts the quality of life of the individual but also impacts the quality of life of the people around them. I'm talking about Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, and it we think of it as a general term for cognitive issues, memory loss, loss of cognitive abilities. It's serious enough to interfere with a person's life. Now, we all forget our keys, and we walk into a room, and we think, what did I come in here for? And that can happen in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. But Alzheimer's disease is something quite different. It is noticed by other members of the family. It is noticed often by friends as well. It might happen on the golf course where somebody just isn't playing the way that they used to or is forgetting the bag or is not taking the golf clubs out. Or it can happen at home. It can be noticed by family members, perhaps by older children who are just saying that, you know, mom or dad was just walking around opening drawers, seeming aimless in the kitchen. Things have been changing. One thing I'd like to say is that Alzheimer's is not a normal part of aging. And it accounts for 60 to 80% of dementia cases. The greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is increasing age. And we are all aging. And the majority of people with Alzheimer's are 65 years of age and older. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, I think I have Alzheimer's. I think that's enough insight to understand that you probably don't have Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is considered to be young onset Alzheimer's disease if it affects somebody under the age of 65. It can also be referred to as early onset Alzheimer's, and so that can happen. But Alzheimer's can also be in the early, middle, or late stages of the disease. And you might see it in the early stages of the disease when somebody is younger, it's something that worsens over time because it's a progressive disease. So the dementia symptoms, the memory loss, the cognitive ability loss worsens gradually over a number of years. Typically, it starts out that memory loss is mild, but as it gets to the later stages, those with Alzheimer's disease lose the ability to do activities of daily living. They oftentimes can't carry on a conversation. They can't respond to their environment. They stop driving. They stop cooking. They stop doing laundry. One of the, you know, saddest things about Alzheimer's disease is that people are disconnected with their environment. Typically, people with Alzheimer's disease live about four to eight years after the diagnosis, but oftentimes people are in such good physical condition that they can live as long as 20 years, depending on many other factors. But It's so hard on a family. It's so hard on especially a spouse who oftentimes feels incredibly responsible for their lifelong partner who has suddenly, if you will, or slowly taken on this diagnosis or has been diagnosed with this diagnosis. Oftentimes people live with people with Alzheimer's for a while denying that the symptoms are there or they're afraid to get a diagnosis because they're afraid of 
of the truth, as I've said before many times, denial is a drug. There are some medications. There's no cure for Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately, but there are some medications that can actually help to reduce the cognitive and functional decline that people living with Alzheimer's have, especially if it's early Alzheimer's. That's why it's best to get a diagnosis as early as possible, as soon as one starts to see the cognitive decline, the memory loss, the uh, inability to connect with the environment, the the blank stares, the not really engaging in a conversation. Oftentimes people, especially when it's younger people who have symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, people can think that it's stress or it's depression. So that's why it's extremely important that the diagnosis be made, that you take your loved one to the doctor. Uh, There can there can also be other signs. There can be irritability and anger issues, and there can be some aggression as well. But treatments can temporarily slow the worsening of dementia symptoms, and that ultimately improves the quality of life with those who have Alzheimer's and their caregivers. It, this is a very, very difficult and tough diagnosis. I hear some patients of mine, their their spouses will say, you know, my spouse is up all night long, and I'm not getting sleep as well. This disease, Alzheimer's disease, also has an impact on the spouse. Um, there's a lot of research underway, the globe, you know, around the globe, but, you know, we're really not that much further ahead in Alzheimer's treatment than we have been for the past 40, 50 years. Our brains change as we age, and that's one of the problems. We don't really understand how the brain works, yet we know it's responsible for who we are and and how we behave. Everybody notices some slowed thinking or problems remembering certain things. It's not uncommon. But serious memory loss, confusion, and other major changes in the way the mind works can be a sign that brain cells are failing, and it could be a sign of Alzheimer's disease. There are parts of the brain that change that affect learning. And so as Alzheimer's advances through the brain, the symptoms can become that much more severe. And oftentimes the reason people think it's a depression or a mood disorder is because there are mood and behavior changes. The confusion becomes worse. People can't remember where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be at a certain place, where they're going. And this can really impact, you know, somebody, for example, if they're still driving and they have no idea where they're going and they can end up hours from home. People with Alzheimer's disease can also have difficulty speaking and and swallowing. That can affect their weight as well. And they may actually be at a greater risk of falls and fractures. But people with Alzheimer's disease have difficulty recognizing that they may have a problem. But the signs may be more obvious to the spouse, the children, friends, Friends in particular, because oftentimes the family doesn't want to think there's anything wrong with their loved one because they probably know or have heard stories of other people who have experienced dementia-like symptoms. Anybody who's experiencing dementia-like symptoms should see a doctor as soon as possible. There is uh, a great resource, the AlzheimersAssociation.com, which is actually ALZ.org is the um, website and you can go there and check things out because certainly help is available. The brain goes through microscopic changes long before 
the first signs of memory loss. We have about 100 billion nerve cells or neurons in our brain, and they connect with many other nerve cells to allow for communication network. And and the, the networks and the, the groups of nerve cells, they, they have particular jobs. They're involved in, in thinking and learning and behaving and remembering, seeing, smelling, hearing. And these brain cells operate like little factories and they receive supplies and they bring on energy and they get rid of waste as well. So there, there's always, um, the brain is always acting and reacting and processing and storing information, communicating with other cells. And so, but this all requires a large amount of fuel and oxygen. And it's very important that you keep your brain healthy. Brain health is so critical and it's about exercising daily. It's about minimizing alcohol. I've said this before. I know that a neurologist I was speaking to one evening, he said that when you drink alcohol, basically it's absorbed in the cerebrospinal fluid, which bathes your brain every night. And so as people age, they, they gain a much higher tolerance for alcohol and they're drinking more. Just means your brain is being bathed in alcohol. Sugar is another thing that one should stay away from. Getting adequate sleep, very helpful in the prevention of Alzheimer's disease as well. I'm sure you've heard about plaques and tangles. There are two abnormal structures that are called plaques and tangles, and they are the prime suspects in what kills nerve cells. Um, They are protein fragments and twisted fibers of proteins called tau, and they build up inside the cells. And according to autopsies, people have, uh, it has been discovered that people have these plaques and these tangles, but even scientists don't know what causes them as well. But nerve cells are destroyed. We know that is what leads to memory failure and personality changes and the problems carrying out daily activities, simple tasks of daily living. People have a hard time with when Alzheimer's disease progresses, when it begins, and then and then even much more so as it progresses. People may need help with getting dressed and brushing their teeth and um, getting to doctor's appointments, and they need somebody to be there to listen to what the doctor has to say. It's a good idea to take notes, regardless of whatever the medical condition is, especially if it's a serious one, because people get extremely stressed and their brain can shut down when they hear this negative information. So it's just so important, basically, to take care of your brain. Prevention is key. Alzheimer's disease progresses in stages. It starts out typically mild, and then it progresses as time goes on. You have mild cognitive impairment, mild dementia to moderate dementia, and then severe dementia eventually. And oftentimes people require care in a long-term care facility. So one thing you can do is value and keep care, good care of your brain. It's very important. But how do we care for these patients, these Alzheimer's patients, when they are no longer able to live in their home. Well, the country of France has a great idea. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease, a devastating progressive illness that affects people as they age, but can also come on earlier. There are some risk factors that are associated with Alzheimer's disease that I wanted to mention. 
Surprisingly enough, education level, a lower education level is associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Cognitive activity, you often hear people suggesting that you do crossword puzzles or you challenge your brain in different ways, especially as you age. Learn a new musical instrument, learn a second or third language. Anything to help with cognitive activity can help prevent Alzheimer's disease for you. Hypertension in midlife is associated with a higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. We also have genetics, of course, and and lifestyle, which I mentioned earlier. Orthostatic hypotension is also associated with Alzheimer's disease, and that's when you go from a lying to a standing position, oftentimes quickly, and your blood pressure drops. Typically, we're able to stabilize that, but sometimes people have difficulty and cannot do that. Diabetes is also associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. That's why it's important to have adequate nutrition, low glycemic index diets, uh, and also keep your weight down because your body mass index is also a risk factor that is associated with Alzheimer's disease. Head trauma, which you may or may not be able to prevent, um, can be associated with Alzheimer's disease as well. And so it's just very important that you, we keep our brains active so that we can fight up against dementia, battle back against that beast. So you want to do things that stimulate your brain and, and strengthen the connectivity between brain cells because that connectivity, as I mentioned earlier, is broken down in dementia. We have to keep our brains active, even in older age. And I think a lot of people are realizing this. They're actually staying at work longer than the suggested age of 62 of retirement or age of 65. I often hear about people who are well into their 70s and even 90s, still working, still practicing as a dentist. Recently, I learned of somebody, uh, a friend of mine's mother, 78 years old, still practicing as a, a pediatrician. Um, people are getting second jobs. You see it in some of the southern states. Um, in some of the, um, like if you go into uh, any stores in Florida, for example, you often see those are staffed by older people. It's a second career for them, if you will. But it's basically to keep that connection with people going, have a little bit of extra money and keep their brain active um, because that can reduce your chance of developing dementia. But um, I love it when I hear people are still working, that they, that they don't feel like they have to retire, that they're not forced to retire. And I think the pandemic helped that a little bit because a lot of people were working from home. That reduces the stress on people, the commuting stress, and also decreases or helps with some of the financial issues associated with commuting and that kind of thing. But it keeps people's brains active, and I think it's very good. I've talked about this before, hypertension. Healthy hearts have long long been linked to a healthy brain. And so, st- according to research, high blood pressure in middle age increases Alzheimer's risk. I've heard of so many people, they want to deny their blood pressure as well. So it is so important that you take care of that. Eat healthy. Just so many simple things you can do to protect your brain. It's hard because you don't see your brain. And and I think people don't value it or appreciate it when they don't see it as much. I, I just wanted to mention something else as well. People living with Alzheimer's disease also suffer from depression. 
but it's uncertain if depression causes Alzheimer's or it's just a symptom of the disease. I do know a geriatrician who says she puts all of her senior patients on an antidepressant because a lot of people become depressed as they age. Their worlds become smaller. And such is the case for people with Alzheimer's disease. Their worlds become smaller, especially when they're no longer able to come and go as they please. They maybe have stopped driving. They maybe have stopped shopping. They've stopped getting together with friends. Um, Also, sometimes the disease progresses so much that we have to put our loved ones into nursing homes or into long-term care facilities. And it's at that time that their worlds become incredibly small. But they're safer. They're safer for them, and they're safer for those of us who love them. But is a life that is safer and smaller the best life? You know, I'm sure you've heard of memory care uh, units or memory care long-term facilities or memory care programs. They sound so wonderful. So we're, as though we're somehow caring for somebody's memory that they have lost. They are typically units that have locked keypads to prevent people from wandering out. And they're rarely unsupervised. So people need to have supervision. We want to protect them from falling. We want to protect them from cutting themselves. We want to protect them from danger. But is that the best care? I'm not exactly sure. Is it the best quality of life? I don't know. I did hear of a nursing facility in Ottawa, in the Ottawa area, that um, had like a fake bus stop. And they also had a restaurant. And they had places for people to go. They had a supermarket. And so they had all these activities that the person could go and, and basically pretend that their life was still the same. It does kind of expand their life a little bit. If you have cared for somebody with Alzheimer's, you're probably safer with that small, secure attempt we do to resize their world, removing choices that might pose a danger to them. But I I quite honestly love that idea of the bus stop. And there's one gentleman in this facility who went to the bus stop to commute every day. And so he goes to the bus stop and is living in a world where he pretends that he gets on the bus, but he's easier to live with. He's happier. He's, you know, his mood is better and, and he feels like his world is okay. And so I was interested in this type of facility and I um, stumbled upon the village Landais, which is situated in Dax in the Southwestern part of France. And it's a part of a movement to make memory care units less like hospitals and more like small neighborhoods and people feel comfortable in them. The people in them feel comfortable in them, and the people that have seen the people living in this type of facility feels comfortable in them because the idea of it is to convince residents that little has changed. Life is still as it once was. There's children to take care of. There are holidays to be celebrated and familiar homes to return to. So it's a small little village, and it conveys a different message that life remains full of choices for people with Alzheimer's and that autonomy is actually what enriches life. Because who wouldn't get depressed? You've lost your memory. You don't see your friends anymore. Things have changed. Life as you knew it has changed. 
your doors are locked. You can't come and go as you please. Well, in this particular little village, people can come and go as they please. They can go in the door and out the window if they want. They can shout. They can make tea at 2 o'clock in the morning. They can sweep with the broom upside down. They can also handle sharp knives in the kitchen. This is a particular type of care, and the people that advocate advocate for this type, kind of care suggest that people with Alzheimer's and the risks of institutional dehumanization are just as profound as the physical dangers of cutting one's hand or falling and breaking a bone. Think about it. Have you ever known anybody who has been institutionalized? They do lose their sense of being human. It's really awful. And that's what we're doing when we're putting our loved ones into a memory care facility that is locked and limited. The cognitive difficulties that people with Alzheimer's have don't allow them to adapt to our world, the world that we know. But this type of facility adapts to them. I think it's something to consider. I think Canada might be thinking about it, and I think it's maybe a good way to be. I'd I'd certainly like you to be open to it and to think about it because it's very hard to be institutionalized, to be served everything and bathed and walked and made a schedule every day, all day long. It doesn't allow for creativity or helping the brain. Talking about a medical condition that is one of the top causes of disability. Arthritis affects nearly 6 million adults in Canada and 30,000 children. There's over 100 different types of arthritis and related conditions that damage the joints and often other organs as well, which is why I'm so excited to have my next couple of guests on. Um, Arthritis Society Canada's commitment to innovation in the arthritic space will be on full display on April 20th, where seven finalists will compete in a pitch style competition for a chance to be awarded $50,000 to help grow their initiative. Joining me on the line to talk about her initiative is Cassandra Huey of Heal Mary. Good evening, Cassandra. Hi there, Maureen. How are you doing? I am doing well tonight, thanks. Wonderful, wonderful. Just a quick uh, recap. What exactly is arthritis? How is arthritis defined? Yeah, so arthritis uh, is usually defined as as two things, typically rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. And just as you mentioned, it impacts about 6 million Canadians, so one in five of us, 20%. Which was my other question is, is what brought you to enter this space? Um, you said one in five of us, and uh, that includes yourself, I gather. It actually includes both of my parents um, who are living with the condition right now. So that was my real motivation. Beyond that, you know, we started our innovation actually because my mom and two sisters also went through cancer journeys of their own. So it really propelled me into the healthcare space. And one thing I realized is I, I know there has to be a better way to find out not only about clinical trial treatments, but more importantly, what's the process to get into them. And I'm really passionate, you know, about these therapeutic areas. Uh, you, you certainly sound it. That is just so awesome. But oftentimes it affects us personally. And then we just, you know, decide that we need to take charge of this and, and that passion drives us 
to hopefully find better treatments, solutions, cures. So tell me a little bit, first tell me a little bit about Heal Mary, H-E-A-L, Mary. Yeah, absolutely. Heal Mary, definitely a play on words. Um, But Heal Mary, really what it is, is it's a digital platform and we leverage machine learning and natural language processing to utilize that to help find and match patients, arthritis patients, with the most appropriate clinical research trial that meets their healthcare needs. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Good for you. So um, now, uh, I know you're going to be in a pitch dial competition uh, for a chance to be awarded $50,000 to help grow your initiative, and I wish you all the best of luck with that, but what exactly is your pitch? What what have you come up with uh, in hopes of finding better solutions and treatments for people who suffer with arthritis? Absolutely. We're very excited to be one of the seven finalists in this space, and currently, how it works is that an arthritis patient or person living with arthritis would log on to the Heal Mary platform. They'd search for what they're looking for in a trial. And then through a series of questions, they'd be able to sort by demographics, what they're looking to do about their condition. Are you looking to manage it or treat it? And our machine learning tool will uh, do a few things. It will actually translate clinical language so you can understand what the study is trying to do. It will also parse out the acceptance criteria so you know pretty quickly whether or not you qualify. And what the arthritis ideator uh, grant would allow us to do would help us scale quickly in the space, but also two things that we've heard from our patient groups is they really are looking to uh, enable themselves to use their EMR, so their medical records, to help pre-qualify them with their practitioner for a study faster. And the second piece of it that we'd be using the funds to do is to automatically schedule appointments. So one thing we've heard from our patient groups is to seamlessly be able to schedule their first treatment visit to see if they actually qualify. Mm -hmm. You know, clinical trials are so important and oftentimes, and I imagine this is in the arthritic space as well, I'm a little bit more familiar with it in the cancer space, um, but that people get to a certain type of treatment, they get to a certain um, level of, um, you know, help that they're feeling a bit better, but they, they need more. Um, and so they often will enter a clinical trial and that's oftentimes their only hope because clinical trials, uh, they're not medications that are approved, um, necessarily, but they have actually demonstrated and correct me if I'm wrong, they've demonstrated some hope and that they will give people a better quality of life. Would, would you say that's a fair statement? Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, and I know you mentioned cancer, and really that's the space where we've seen a lot of people interested in clinical trials. But what I think we don't understand is necessarily that people living with arthritis, maybe they're not actually looking to cure because there is no cure for it right now, but they're actually looking to do things like manage their pain. Um, they're mm-hmm. looking to see if they can use nutrition as a method of being able to reduce some of the, the inflammation and things that they're going through. So, you know, clinical trials beyond sort of the treatments and treatment options that are available also does things to help them manage their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And, and are these the uh, clinical trials that are entered into clinicaltrials.gov.org? Can, could somebody just go there or does this go, does your platform go beyond that? Yeah, and so clinicaltrials.gov is a great platform for clinicians or uh, people who are looking to help support patients because there is a lot of medical jargon. 
what our platform does is actually uses natural language processing to simplify all of that information so that the everyday person who maybe doesn't have a science background can look through this information and know pretty quickly what a study is trying to do and whether or not it actually meets their healthcare needs. So things like, am I willing to travel? Am I willing to go to another country to get treatment? And so those questions, I think an individual is pretty aware of and can figure out for themselves. And so our platform is really about enabling the everyday person. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. You're absolutely correct in clinicaltrials.gov.org. You know, everybody registers their their clinical trial and the study design and, and the outcomes, but it is a lot of higher level language and people may not realize that they're still enrolling patients or... So are these, um, these trials are all over the world. So people can potentially um, go to Australia to get help with their arthritis if they are willing to travel, for example. Absolutely. So uh, we scrape globally available clinical trials daily. And as you mentioned, you know, it's the ones that are actively recruiting. So it's in real time. And if you're able to travel and willing, like for someone like me, where my family lives elsewhere, I'd probably want to get treated somewhere where I could be supported by my family. And so there's Mm -hmm. that option of figuring out, well, where in the world would you want to have your treatment done? What kind of treatments are you interested in? And that's really what we're trying to do is cater to the lifestyle of a person living with arthritis. Mm-hmm. And, and what gave you this idea? What, was, what prompted this? Yeah, so my background is actually in tech and my family's personal journeys with both their cancer diagnoses and now their arthritis diagnosis was really what drove it. And what I realized is We're using machine learning and natural language processing across a multitude of other industries. And for me, it was the idea of, well, can we harness the same sort of technology in a very clinical space and make it very easy for a patient to understand clinical trials, understand what's available to them, and pre-qualify for certain trials that were of interest to them. One thing that I've realized working with patients and, and people living with certain conditions is that they're very, very knowledgeable about their disease. They're very informed about their day-to-day experience and what they'd like to get from that. And so Mm -hmm. that really drove us to build a tool to support that. Yeah, it it sounds absolutely amazing. I have a friend who uh, died a few years ago of a glioblastoma, and it's such a devastating diagnosis. And I remember saying to his wife, you know, what about clinical trials? And they were so overwhelmed, they couldn't even begin uh, to do that. But, um, but I imagine with your platform of Heal, Heal Mary, um, it sounds like an awesome idea. And I love your passion. And I wish you all the best of luck in the Arthritis Ideator Awards. Um, and I appreciate your commitment to innovation in this space, because it is such a, a, a devastating, really, as a ter- in terms of quality of life. And anyone living with chronic pain, it has to affect so much of their life. So, Cassandra, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the program, talking about it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the space, Maureen. Really appreciate it. I just talked about some Arthritis Ideator Awards. Arthritis Society Canada has a commitment to innovation in the arthritic space. We just heard from one of the applicants of Heal Mary. And now we're going to hear from Eric Kiff, who also is submitting and hoping to win $50,000 to help grow 
their initiative. And um, he joins me on the line. It's, he is Eric Kiff of Imaging Reality. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight and talking about this very important condition, arthritis. It has symptoms like pain, redness, stiffness, swelling, tenderness, warmth. People manage it with medications, but there's no cure, basically. It impacts quality of life, relationships, employment. So I'm so delighted to learn that you, Eric, are interested in helping to improve quality of life here for people. So tell me about your initiative. Um, so yeah, Imaging Reality is a, uh, a company here in Vancouver. Uh, we started about six years ago, and we've been focused on using virtual reality to educate people uh, using medical images like CT scans or MRI uh, about anatomy and physiology of the body. We've found that, uh, that using virtual reality allows lay people like patients or students to understand this complex anatomy much more easily than they would using traditional means. And so how will this actually translate to helping people manage their condition? So the, uh, the research we've been using for this has shown that uh, patients who have been newly diagnosed with uh, osteoarthritis of the knee have, mm -hmm. uh, have typically felt very stressed and uncomfortable and pressured into, even if not externally so, pressured into uh, going into a knee replacement surgery. Uh, we found that education of these patients has uh, given them more confidence to discuss this condition with their, uh, with their doctor and with their surgeon and to often choose alternative treatments beforehand, such as physiotherapy and exercise, before committing to uh, full knee replacement. Right, which is less expensive on the healthcare system, helps with wait lists, um, helps with cutting down or reducing um, surgical complications, infection and bleeding and that kind of thing. Um, it's very interesting. Do you feel like people want a quick fix? Uh, oftentimes people, I find people just want a pill, they just want to get it over with, or they'll say to me, and you know, I work in more of urology, um, you know, just tell the doctor that I need surgery. Uh, do you find that this empowers patients? to take care of themselves better and uh, so one of our, you know sorry yeah one ahead. of our collaborators one of our collaborators has done research on this exact thing and they found that although some patients are like that they do want the quick fix uh, when properly okay. educated when informed of the uh, the outcomes of surgery sometimes it takes a long time the recovery can be slow there's a lot of risk uh, and patient dissatisfaction with surgery can be quite high even after the surgery so given this information and more information on how physiotherapy and, and uh, exercise can, in fact, improve symptoms reasonably well, uh, a lot of patients do, in fact, choose to ch try those, uh, those treatments first. Mm -hmm. And how about hips? Is this, uh, I mean, people can have osteoarthritis in the hips. They get a lot of hip replacements. Um, does it have the same impact there? I think so. We've, we've been focusing on the knee mostly because we want to limit our focus uh, just for this initial project. But obviously, if it works in this particular area, we intend to expand it to other kinds of conditions, uh, other parts of the body and other kinds of arthritis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think nutrition alone can be very helpful. And then, of course, exercising. I mean, we typically tend to stay away from exercising when we're in pain, but it's even been demonstrated that patients who have cancer, if they exercise, that can actually help to reduce pain and in increase their mood as well. 
Um, what will you do with the money uh, should you be the winner? So uh, we have the technology already for, for general purpose uh, virtual reality with medical imaging. But what we want to do is extend it to both uh, target this particular condition, arthritis, by uh, working with our, with our colleagues and experts and uh, hiring a video producer to, uh, to help us create a quality video that both educates the patients but also inspires them and makes them feel much better about what their journey will look like. Uh, and then the second thing we want to do is uh, extend our technology to target lower cost virtual reality headsets. Uh, the, the, the technology we use now uses expensive headsets that require connection to a PC, uh, but with a bit of effort, we can convert it to work with these low cost consumer headsets that are you know, less than $500 and easily available and don't require a computer to run. They run completely independently, uh, much like a phone that you wear on your face. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that education is the future of healthcare. You know, once people learn about conditions and have a better understanding about them, you know, they can actually deliver care better. Um, I mean, I find that even in my colleagues who I, I do a lot of sexual health work, but, you know, once they learn how to speak to a patient, how to talk to a patient, once the patients understand as well, I find that the outcomes are so much better. I, I, I really think you're onto something here, combining virtual reality and education. And, you know, mm. we, we've typically had like kept that information from patients in a way, you know, historically and, you know, the old model of healthcare. But this is really a new model of, of healthcare, essentially, is what you're trialing. Yeah. And, and actually, just anecdotally, I, I, we've been using this product with mostly with students who are already in the health space. So uh, uh, speech pathology and physiology students have been using our software in schools. Uh, but when I show it to my friends, especially friends who are undergoing medical treatment of their own uh, and have who they have where they have CT scans or MRIs of their body, uh, when I show it to them in VR, even though they're not medically educated, they immediately understand the images and they immediately mm-hmm. understand how it associates with their body and the enlightenment they get. Like it's it's just instantaneous. VR just explains things right away without any sort of uh, additional information. And it's just such a it's just such a game changer when people need to learn about their own bodies. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think people do need to learn about their own bodies. I said to a patient recently, they were talking about their scan, you know, their, it was an MRI or a PET scan. And, and they said something about the results. And I'm like, Oh, so you can read scans now? She laughed and said, No, (laughs) you know, like, I haven't got a clue what I'm looking at. Um, But you know, when people understand when they get it, it, it's just so important and it is, it's game changing in terms of their health and their quality of life. I mean, that, that is amazing. I want to mention, if you want to vote for Eric, arthritis.ca forward slash people's choice exclamation point. I wish I had $50,000 to give all of you <laughs> <laughs> because it is, it's so important, you know, these, um, these initiatives and, and what's inspired you to do this work? Uh, well, I, I mean, so I've uh, I've got a history in video games and uh, software development. So I've been an enthusiast of virtual reality since it became popular in, in uh, consumer world. Uh, and I also have a background in in medicine. I was a paramedic very briefly um, in my uh, in my forties. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, ever since I finished my video game career, I've really wanted to to get into the medical the medical field and help people. And I see how virtual virtual reality can help people understand medicine that affects them and impacts them and makes their lives better. 
And I, it's just so much more immersive and appealing than trying to just give them a tablet or a pamphlet and say, here, read this. It can really, really open their eyes quickly. And I think that's just a huge impact. And I want everybody, everybody to be able to see how, how VR can help patients. Wow, that is it's so empowering for people too, for people to understand. So often they don't understand their own medical condition. They don't understand pain management. They're they're afraid if they give too much pain medication. I see this in my clinical practice that it's going to lead to addiction after somebody who's never had addiction and is experiencing significant pain. Um, you know, so they they don't really understand and it impacts their quality of life, but yeah, absolutely. I think virtual reality is is definitely a way to go. Um, and so it's, uh, I, I anyway, I'm, I'm just amazed by the whole thing, and I'd, I'd love to try it myself. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, well, I, um, I, I will. I guess that's the hard thing about virtual reality. It's very hard to give someone a demo without actually giving them a headset. So it's a, it's a real struggle to show right. the power. I am, I am sure. Well, good luck to you. I, I uh, really appreciate you coming on the program and educating people about this. And uh, once again, much. if you have been inspired by either of these stories, the website to go and vote is arthritis.ca forward slash people's choice exclamation point. Eric Kiss of Imaging Reality is one of the contestants and there's only seven. So congratulations uh, ahead of time. That's awesome that you got that far, Eric. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck. Thanks very much. We're really focusing on quality of life because quality of life is so important. And honestly, your health is your wealth. It's not about the size of your bank account or the size of your car or how new your house is or whatever. At the end of the day, none of that matters. You can't take any of it with you. I had a patient who had everything, was just so wealthy beyond belief. And at the end of her life, she couldn't use any of her finest silverware or china. She couldn't lift anything. She had a degenerative muscular disease. And here she was sitting in her bed using paper plates and cardboard boxes and tissues as napkins because everything was too heavy. So count your blessings. It's so important. Try to stay positive. We're going to be talking a little bit about sex and chronic illness, and then also going to be talking about the new COVID variant. Yes, you're right. You thought COVID had gone away. No, we're just not testing for COVID anymore. Plenty of people are still getting it, although the cases are down, the hospitalizations are down, and it looks like the virus has decreased in the wastewater as well. That's really the only unit of measure these days. Um, And so hopefully we will not be struck or our lives won't be changed by this new COVID variant that has struck India and many parts of the U.S. and Canada as well. But right now, I want to talk to you about your self-talk. Is your self-talk driving you crazy? And how crazy is your self-talk? You know, recently, you know, none of us like to make mistakes. We all want to do our best. We want to perform at the highest level possible. You know, but sometimes you just fail. You just make a mistake. Could it have come out and had a different outcome? Yeah, maybe it could have, but it didn't. And so here it is. You are alone with your thoughts. And I was alone with my thoughts on something that I 
didn't do well at recently. I'm so embarrassed I don't even want to share it with you. You, my listeners, <laughs> that's how bad it was. And it's not like I'm a perfectionist by any stretch of the imagination. No, I am not. And I also feel that feedback is a gift, and I really appreciate feedback because there's no other way that we can learn. But when I realized the kind of self-talk I had in my head, I was just like, oh my gosh, how did you even get there? And it was an awakening for me. I will share the story with you because maybe you have done the same thing. Maybe you've had some negative self-talk or self-talk that was just like, this is not getting me anywhere. This is fruitless and this is ridiculous and sublime. So recently I had something I didn't do that well at. And I've, you know, there's oftentimes in life I haven't done that well at certain things. And, you know, there's always a reason. And you, you go back to it and, you, you know, you wish you can redo the past, but you can't. So that's part of the, the self-talk that I was having in my head. You know, if I could just go back and I could, if I just could have done this, if I could have tried that, if I could have tried this. There's a problem that I just couldn't rectify and nobody could help me with it either. I did seek help with it and I thought that I had resolved it, but I didn't. It didn't work. I still continue to have the same problem. Could I have tried harder? Maybe. This is some of the self-talk that I am sharing with you. But I was in my head thinking about it and thinking about what caused it. You know, because we, we want to blame it on something. We want to say, I wasn't at fault. I mean, how could this have had a better outcome? What could I have done? And and basically, I went from that to, you know, as opposed to... I. I kept saying like don't beat yourself up about it and I'm sure you've said that to yourself as well when you have made a mistake or done something that you wish you didn't or if something was happening in your life and I'm sure you're just thinking you know let's try to be positive let's try to learn from this oh you're just so embarrassed you you know just anyway you just go over and over it and so I was kind of processing it and thinking about um, you know, what I could have done better and what I, if I'd had the chance now, what would I do? And, and, and then just trying to look at other times when the same theme had happened to me. And so from there I went to, um, yes, this kind of the same thing has happened two or three other times in my life where I just kind of, you know, gave up a little bit. And, and so it went from that negative self-talk and how, you know, what an idiot I was. And then I started just beating myself up. And I'm sure you beat yourself up as well. Think about it. Think about the self-talk that you have in your life when something doesn't go your way. Something doesn't go swimmingly for you. And you're just like, oh, you know, you're, uh, you're embarrassed. You think you're the only one. Other people point things out to you. And you're just like, oh, you know, we love to take other people down. And, and sometimes, you know, some people deliver feedback in a better way and you're just focusing on the negative, the negative, and how could I have done this and, and why did I do this? And, you know, I just went from all of these places and, you know, of course, self-blame and then just, you know, oh, just such regret, embarrassment, shame, so many things. I mean, really what I did wasn't all that bad. <laughs> At the end of the day, um, you know, nobody was harmed <laughs> in the process. Um, you know, nobody was mistreated. There was nothing. It was nothing like that. Um, it was just one of those things where you just didn't do as well as you could have done um, because of certain circumstances, whatever. But 
what were those circumstances. And I did notice a pattern. Certain things happen, you know, in your life. And, you know, you become busy and you become overwhelmed. And then personal things may happen as well. And then you're just like focusing on that. And anyway, it was just one thing led to another in my head. What are, what are some of the crazy self-talk things you say when when you did something that you wish you hadn't done, that you wish something had come out another way? Or if you're, you know, applying for a job, for example, you know, what are some of those things that, that you say to yourself, you know, there's way better candidates, I'm, I'm not that smart after all, I'm not that good, I'm not a good fit. It's all negative. And I think some of the media, you know, today, there's so much negativity and, and divisiveness in the media that I think we just naturally go that way. Our, our brains just kind of naturally go toward the negative. But, but the self-talk can actually drive you crazy. And, you know, it's responsible for so many of our failures and why we think the way that we do. So we do definitely have to change that conversation in our head. So one thing that kind of woke me up, I was just like, I went from... Yeah, of course, being like, oh, embarrassed and oh my gosh, and how could I have done better to, you know, I am, I, I, then I go right to the imposter syndrome. I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not, I'm a fake. I'm the whole thing. You're just like, they should have had somebody else. I should have recommended somebody else. Um, you know, it's this whole idea that, you know, you're just being so unfair to yourself. And, you know, and, and I, I do every now and again have these thoughts that I think are helpful. It's like, you know, the other people have moved on. <laughs> the other person has actually moved on. They're not thinking about you. You're giving way too much free rent to this in your head, Maureen. Um, and when other people are just carrying on with other things, people are busy. But, you know, it just comes into your head or something triggers it and you think, oh my gosh, you know. Um, here it is again. And you're still trying to rectify the problem that you had and you can't. It is beyond your technical ability. Still trying to figure it out. It's just not working. Anyway, so I eventually went to that whole imposter thing. Um, and then slowly, I don't know how I just like looked at my life and, <laughs> and how busy I was and, um, you know, and, and I try not to be so busy because I, I really try and set limits and healthy boundaries. And I think that's very important to do. And I really suggest that you do that as well. Sometimes we can take on too much. Sometimes other things just enter our lives when we have set those healthy limits and boundaries. I'm not making any excuse, but I realized that, you know, it was just, you know, uh, too busy. You know, it was that I maybe should have said no. Maybe I should have said another time would work better. Maybe I should have done that, this or that. And then, you know, the whole looking at then your entire life and eventually, which is what really woke me up, I actually decided my husband was to blame for the entire thing. <laughs> and that is when I went, oh my gosh, stop it. Stop this self-talk, this kind of negative self-talk in my head. I mean, of course, my husband had absolutely nothing to do with it. I could extrapolate <laughs> my life and eventually get to this thinking that it was a rational thought. It was completely irrational. My kind, loving, wonderful husband is certainly not to blame for my mistake and my failure. But that is the kind of irrational thought we can have in our heads. And, and so I'm sure 
that you have had those kinds of thoughts in your head as well. But you know what? We don't have to live that way. There are so many strategies and techniques to actually calm the mind and say, I'm human. I actually did have a conversation with somebody about it. And they fortunately shared with me, you know, something that they had failed at. They were responsible for a business unit and the this, this, the team had made a grave error financially. It was a financial error. It wasn't a huge financial error, but um, that person was blamed for, for the team's errors. And of course, you know, they're the manager and the buck stops there. But, you know, what was so wonderful about that was that particular person shared their story with me in an effort to make me feel better about it. And then we just talked about being human and, and how we have to be forgiving and how, you know, sometimes people want to tear us down and, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do just want to give you the gift of feedback. And, you know, and it truly is a gift because I'll never do that again. <laughs> and my friend will never do what they did again either. And um, someday when I'm evolved, when I am <laughs> actually of a higher functioning, I'm a more self-confidence, I will share the story with you um, <laughs> as to what exactly it was. When Because it, it, right now it just feels a little bit too raw. Talking about those difficult conversations you have in your head. Everyone is basically alone with their thoughts. Nobody else knows, but somehow we still feel embarrassed, especially when we have this negative self-talk. And oftentimes the language that we use and that and the negativity that you express in your head toward yourself or others is totally out of alignment with what is actually happening in your life or at the time. And somehow we blow it up way out of proportion. And it just makes for, you know, tough days, really, and, and, and difficult times and maybe a pit in your stomach. We say things to ourselves that we would never, ever say in real life. But if you were, if you're just joining us now, I shared a little personal story about myself and I was thinking about something in a very negative fashion. And then ultimately I blamed my kind, sweet husband for the whole thing. <laughs> he doesn't even know about it. Anyway, and <laughs> yet I was comfortable blaming him. Um, and that was when I woke up, actually. I'm like, wait a minute here. Okay, come on. This is ridiculous. And so then that uh, self-talk begins. So the first thing is become aware of the conversation that you're having in your head. And you know what? Be compassionate with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be soft on yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. Don't become angry or critical of your own thoughts. It's not helpful. It is not beneficial to your mental health. You know, it's difficult to hear, you know, somebody might give you some feedback. They might say, hey, you're pretty cynical. You're pretty negative. Um, and you know, it's tough to hear that, but everything about life can be changed, but awareness comes first. And so being aware of that negative or wild, crazy self-talk is, is no different. You know, you can change that. Sometimes, you know, these aren't the biggest problems in life. Believe you me, there are way bigger problems. So that awareness is key. It's the first step to battling back this beast, this beast that's in your head, this beast of negative self-talk. And who doesn't talk negatively to themselves? Only knew, you know your thoughts unless you share them with somebody else. And sometimes you don't even fully share what you have thought about yourself. 
And, you know, we've all thought poorly of ourselves. But if you were giving somebody else feedback or somebody else came to you with the problem that you had, how would you be to them? How would you talk to the supposed heroes in your life? I don't think that you would speak negatively to them. I think you would be kinder to them than you are to yourself. You probably don't realize that a lot of your self-talk is negative. And, you know, a lot of people have shared that with me in my clinical practice, the things that they think about themselves or talk about themselves or emails that I get from you as listeners or messages I get on, on social media that they feel so badly and they can't tell this to anybody, they can't share certain things because there is such negative self-talk. But it's, it's your survival brain trying to protect you from the dangers of the big bad world that we live in and we have to face every single day. If most of your self-talk is negative, this will directly impact the results in your life. It'll affect your relationships, your job, your personal life, your professional life, your issues with friends. It'll affect your family. It'll affect so much. So you need to change the conversation in your head. And this isn't something that's going to happen overnight by becoming slowly aware of these conversations that you're having. And then you need to add in the positive self-talk. Question that old self-talk and expose it for the damage that it's doing to you. I mean, look at me. You know, it was something that was bothering me for days. And and then I just woke up to like, whoa, (laughs) I blamed my husband. (laughs) Anyway, that made me feel better. Not really. But the best kind of self-talk we can have is a compassionate conversation with ourselves. You know, oftentimes we we are thinking negatively about other people and you're judging other people in your head. But we're not actually being compassionate in that case either. There's something going on in everybody's life, believe you me. Everybody struggles. Everybody has baggage. Everybody has something that is happening that they're concerned about or upset about. You know, nobody's life goes unscathed of problems. You know, um, you, you have to you know, understand that you're doing the best you can. I I go back to my Catholic school upbringing, um, OLA. (laughs) um, They, um, you know, they said really A for effort. If you're trying your best and the best you can in the moment, that's really all that you can do. So oftentimes we're the adult in our head talking down to the child in our head. And instead Try to be the adult who is speaking to his or her greatest idol. Coach yourself. Make the conversation about how you try very hard, and you're getting better at it. It is progress, not perfection. I learned that from my patients. I've learned so much from my patients. Tell yourself where you are today is better than where you were when you first started on something, and tomorrow it's going to be a better day as well. But you've come far and you have so much more to grow and learn. And those are the best people, the people who are lifelong learners, people who are compassionate, care about others and themselves. You can't care about others unless you care about yourself. Hurt people hurt people. So manifest that positive self-talk and slowly introduce that into you, the conversations you have with yourself. You wouldn't speak negatively to an idol or somebody that you admire. And don't do that to yourself.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.